For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in. Like, you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. Hey, this is DeRay. I welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we have the news with me, Brittany Clinton, Sam, as usual, and then we're joined by Mondaire Jones to talk to us about his campaign to be in the U.S. Congress, representing New York's 17th. The message for this week is that every little bit counts. One of the things that I learned as a teacher is that every day we were building skills that in the end would turn into something that would allow my students to do something that they didn't think they could do before. So when I was teaching them that when two things touch it means multiplication or when we were learning what a reciprocal was or when we were learning what an integer was, these building blocks early in the year, it was to set them up so that later they would see it and they'd be like, got it, got it. They could do the process. They understood the number theory behind it. They got it. But it took all these pieces to get us there. And I think so often what you don't ever see is the piecework. You don't see people's craft grow in the pieces. Mostly you see the beautiful artwork at the end. But I'm always reminded that every little bit counts. So keep going with every little bit. It always counts. Let's go. Hey, y'all, it's the news. This is Brittany Packnett Cunningham at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. I, I, I. And this is Dre at D-E-R-A-Y on Twitter. I gave a talk in New York the other day and I got introduced as uh, D-E-R-A-Y on Twitter from somebody who listens to the podcast. And I was like, mm, only people who listen will get this joke. There you go. <laughs> I'll come back around. All right, y'all. We are at... One of the last episodes of the year, which means that we are at one of the last episodes of the decade. I kind of can't believe I'm old enough to not only have lived through decades, because obviously we've lived through decades before, but actually to have real memories around it. Because, you know, I've been like living life as an adult this entire decade. That's wild. I cannot believe it. This has been the wildest decade, at least in the course of my life. But like, where were y'all 10 years ago? Like, clearly you were not sitting behind a mic having a conversation because what was even a podcast in 2010? Where were you all 10 years ago? Man, uh, 2010, 10 years ago, I was graduating from Davidson College, uh, and I was about to go live in South Africa doing public health work around HIV, AIDS, and tuberculosis. I had dreams of writing. I had started a poetry club in college, and I was like, it would be really cool to do some writing. And, and I spent that year in South Africa reading and writing in a way that gave me a lot of time and space, but I could have never imagined that I would get to make a living from it in the way that I do now, and certainly could have never imagined the trajectory that things take. So I'm, I'm incredibly grateful. And if we're thinking about like a transformative moment of the past decade, I mean, it's obviously the marriage to my wife and the birth of my kids. You know, those both happened in the, the latter part of the decade. And, you know, I got my, my little family unit and, you know, we're like building our, our traditions and we're you know, have our own holiday rituals. And I think 21-year-old Clint would be proud of where we ended up. But, you know, this Clint also knows that there's more work to be done. But I feel grateful. Yeah, 10 years ago. So I was 19. What was I doing? I was in school. So I was uh, either like a sophomore or a junior at Stanford. I was studying political science, learning how to measure things like implicit racism and explicit racism and the 92 other forms of racism that they've constructed in the research methodology to measure essentially the same thing. And I wanted to be a political science professor. That was like what I really wanted to be, but couldn't quite figure out how to make that research meaningful, I think was a real challenge. And, and I think over the decade, I've tried to figure out how to translate like research methodologies and data in a way that can actually add value to, to present conversations and connect with people who are outside of the ivory tower. And I think that's sort of been the journey that I've been on over the past decade. And it's been incredible to sort of reflect back on where that really all started and just learning for the first time about data and how to actually quantitatively evaluate things that impact my life and the life of so many people. So it's been cool. It's been a cool journey and we'll see where the next decade takes us. 
Ten years ago, I just left New York and moved uh, back home to Baltimore to open up an after-school center. So I launched this after-school center on the west side of Baltimore, and it was the first of its kind on the side of the city because it was it was like deeply academic, but it was also really long. So it was three nights a week from 3 to 8 p.m., which anybody who's ever worked for kids, it's a long time to be with kids after they've already been to school all day. I'll never forget it because it was like, you know, I got them at three and then they went home at eight, which is like bedtime for a lot of 11 year olds aren't staying up. I had 58th graders. So like I had nine, 10, 11, 12 as we were starting and I had to serve dinner to kids, but I dinner vendor was meals on wheels. And it was <laughs> such a, like the, the meals would come in these huge, like plastic tubs and they'd be like, hey guys, dinner's here. And it was one of the, it was the first time too, I understood the waste that happens because of bureaucracy. We had about 70 kids and I would get enough food for like 80 and we had to throw away all the leftovers. So it'd be like extra chicken and nobody wanted. I'd have to open up every single milk and pour it down the drain unless anybody wanted to take the milk because we couldn't return the milk cartons to Meals on Wheels. But every day we would do it. And the principal at the school hated me. So we did a lot of our group stuff in the cafeteria. So every night, me and my team would have to mop the uh, cafeteria floor because he felt like it was not the custodian's responsibility to do it for the after-school program or to help us. So every night we'd like mop and I'd have to wear special clothes so the bleach would, it was a real, 10 years ago was special. But the thing that I remember, um, I think about how fast technology has gone. You know, obviously the protests were a defining part of the era. But you think about in 2014, there was no Twitter video. There was no Periscope. There were no stories. There was no Instagram Live, Facebook Live. We were literally in 140 characters in Vine in the middle of the street. And the only live stream was like Ustream, if you even remember Ustream, which was like a paid streaming service. So like it is sort of wild to think about just since the protests, like how much technology has moved in a way that I look back on what the protesters did. And I'm even more in awe in the absence of like any of the innovations that make it so much easier to share this content. I remember when I got whitelisted by Twitter to like put videos up because the first video that I sort of made go viral was Brie taking the flag down. Because when Brie took the flag down, I was one of like, I don't know, 20 people who didn't work at Twitter who could actually put videos up, you know? So it just feels like time passed so quickly. Wow. I will say my decade has been completely transformative. Around 2009, 2010, I had just left and finished my time in the classroom in D.C., um, which wasn't the original plan, but uh, it was a choice I had to make because I was growing increasingly frustrated with how few decisions I felt were being made with young people in mind. And I took myself and my 25-year-old idealism to Capitol Hill, wanting to be one of the Many voices um, and a small part of the chorus to help make sure that the students that I was honored to work with every single day and their families were actually present in some kind of decision making up there. I remember being in the Democratic Whips meeting uh, the day that Obamacare got passed and Jim Clyburn, the first black whip of the House, coming and thanking everyone for their hard work. You know, it was the early Obama years. It was when the Democrats were still in control of the House. Uh, there was hope and change everywhere. Just a different era, a different time. And, um, you know, working on Capitol Hill, building relationships, just trying to understand how it all functioned behind closed doors. And, you know, if y'all really want to know all my business, it was also a time where I had ended an engagement, an engagement that would have taken me and moved me back home instead of um, giving me the space to choose to remain in D.C. and pursue I won't just say my professional hopes and dreams, but actually pursue the impact that I wanted to have on the world. And making the choice to do that and choosing myself instead of what was conventionally expected of me definitely opened the door for literally everything that has happened since. Every professional choice, every opportunity, every gift that I was given to grow my skills and my understanding and my relationships and my belief in freedom has prepared me for everything that we all do every day now. And, you know, I started off the decade ending an engagement and ended the decade getting married to the most incredible human being I know. So it's no shade to my ex-fiance. He's a wonderful human being. It just wasn't the plan for my life. And so I'm really grateful for a decade of transformation that has 
humbly positioned me to be a learner and in some ways that I'm still surprised by a leader. So I'm glad to have gone on the journey. I'm glad that so much of the journey has been about y'all and has been with you all. And uh, here's to uh, the decade ahead. My news is about the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Now, I know what you're thinking. Yes, all quality people in this life are Tar Heel fans and not fans of those darn Duke Blue Devils. And I have to say that I, for a long time, have counted myself among them. But I'm going to seriously question that allegiance, given the kind of allegiance that UNC seems to be having these days. So you all have probably previously heard of Silent Sam. Silent Sam was a Confederate statue on the campus of UNC that activists, students, faculty members, community members had been fighting for a long time to get the university to take down. The university was... um shall we say, hesitant in actually doing that and would not commit to taking it down to the point that those same activists had to just topple it themselves. And they took down Silent Sam um, in a very dramatic moment, and it has remained down since. But what we didn't know is that behind the scenes, the university was trying to decide exactly what to do with this particular statue. There were lots of conversations about different options for it. But what we know now is that in the last few months, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill has paid two and a half million million dollars to the sons of Confederate veterans so that they can preserve the Silent Sam statue. Here's how all of this came about. The sons of Confederate veterans are exactly who you think they are. They are people who extol the virtues of the Confederacy. Their mission is to, quote, instill devotion to and reverence for the principles represented by the Confederate States of America, end quote. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about the fact that that is a total call out and allegiance to white supremacy. Not heritage, that is hate. So at the end of the day, the sons of Confederate veterans actually claimed a level of pain and suffering because of the toppling of Silent Sam. They essentially decided to design a sham lawsuit that would set up the university to pay them for said pain and suffering. But what we know is that eight minutes after the lawsuit was filed, the payment was made. In other words, the decision to pay that two and a half million dollars to the sons of Confederate veterans had already been made by the Board of Governors at UNC. Two and a half million dollars to continue to fund and expand hatred in this country and the existence of white supremacy by a university that, of course, employs and educates people of all backgrounds, including the very people that Confederates hated. There are a number of students, faculty members, and community members that are demanding that that money be given back to the university, and that, in fact, that money and more be used to pay reparations to Black students and Black families affected by UNC's engagement in this activity and in previous activity that upheld white supremacy. It's incredibly disappointing to see this decision because there is no other way to characterize it but an all-out support of white supremacy. We know that the interim chancellor that allowed this to happen was actually just named the permanent chancellor of the university, which is an even more disappointing move given that lots of people asked the interim chancellor to denounce that move and he wouldn't so that he could get the job, a job he now has. So it seems that um, there was no way out of this, but I'm glad to see that the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights is taking this on and is filing a suit of their own. There are still over 1,700 Confederate symbols and pieces of Confederate iconography across the country that still stand. And to be clear, and we've talked about this before, the Confederacy is an army that existed and was predicated upon fighting a war that was meant to expand and maintain the institution of enslavement. All of the contemporaneous evidence around what the secession of the Confederacy was for makes clear that this was about slavery. Uh, You can read the declarations of Confederate secession. You can read the speeches from Jefferson Davis. You can read the speeches from Alexander Stevens. They were not ambiguous or vague about uh, what the purpose of secession was and subsequently what their engagement with the war was. So, So I think that that's really important to know. And it's important to know that when you have a statue of someone, by the nature of what a statue is signaling, representing, you are signaling some sort of veneration for the person or thing on top of that statue. So if you put up a statue of a Confederate soldier, you are suggesting that it is someone that we should look up to. So I think that it is clear that the lifting up of any 
person who worked on behalf of the Confederacy runs counter to the espoused notions of justice and equality and decency that we believe in. Uh, two, I think what's also important to know in academia can be tricky because there's often a difference between what's going on in the administration and what's going on with faculty. And I do want to acknowledge that the faculty chairs of most, if not all, of the UNC departments at UNC Chapel Hill wrote a letter saying that this was unacceptable, that this ran counter to what the university was about. And so it is, I think, worth noting that many students and faculty alike have been protesting the decision by the UNC Board of Governors. And I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about something that was going on just a state north of North Carolina in Virginia that's related to this. So the artist Kehinde Wiley created a statue called Rumors of War, which is taking the the imagery and the iconography of a Confederate general on horseback and has instead replaced it with a black man who has dreads and Nikes. And it is this striking, beautiful image that is so reflective of a conceit that exists in so much of Wiley's incredible work. It was originally in New York, but now it's placed permanently in Richmond, Virginia, just down the road from uh, Monument Avenue, which is an avenue that holds uh, several statues of Confederate generals and soldiers, and also is adjacent to the headquarters for the United Daughters of the Confederacy, which is the sister organization of the Sons of Confederate Veterans, which is largely responsible for putting up and funding and sanctioning so many of the statues that exist throughout the South. Statues, again, that were built with the specific intention to terrorize Black communities in the early parts of the 20th century that were intended to ahistoricize what the Civil War was about and to tell a very different story about what the Confederacy existed and was predicated on, even though, again, all the contemporaneous evidence makes clear that it was predicated on maintaining the institution of slavery. So this is the connection between scholars and protests and that like we wouldn't even be having this conversation if there weren't students who took this statue down, which gives us an opportunity to have these conversations about what our real history is and what's been hidden from us for a long time. So as you mentioned, Clint, there are thousands of Confederate statues and monuments that are still up across the country. And one thing that's been interesting is just seeing the process whereby these statues are, if they're taken down at all, the lengths cities will go to nevertheless preserve them, right? So they're not like destroying them. Um, so for example, in Orlando, Florida, where I'm from, there was a statue called Johnny Reb, Johnny Rebel, which is this big statue of a Confederate soldier and with a plaque memorializing their cause and not mentioning that it was slavery. And it was in Lake Eola, which is like downtown in like the center area in downtown Orlando. They moved it. They didn't really take it down. They moved it to Greenwood Cemetery and put it back up over there. And of course, that all costs money. UNC is paying money now to essentially a white supremacist organization, organization of people who are praising white supremacists and celebrating white supremacists as their mission with $2.5 million. And it's just, you know, mind boggling to think that in response to calls to take down these statues. Instead, what we're seeing are cities and universities actually investing more money in preserving these statues. They may move them, they may, you know, transition them to another place, but nevertheless, they're not actually destroying the statues. They are putting them up in another place and paying all the money to do that. And in some cases, paying the organizations that are seeking to preserve those statues. So like, I don't think that's the right approach, but it's something that, that we're seeing cities do nevertheless. And hopefully that will be something that gets challenged as well. Students always have power. And what is impressive about the UNC students is that they are not letting up. And like Clint said, it's not only students, it is faculty, it is community members. Uh, here are a couple of things that everybody can do uh, who is affiliated with UNC is that one, you can withhold money. So there are alum who are being really intentional about their giving now and saying that you thought that it would be powerful or important to give money uh, in this way. And as alum, we will withhold our support or our money. That's one. The second is that the Mellon Foundation actually took back a $1.5 million grant to Chapel Hill over the Silent Sam statue funding. So the Mellon Foundation said, you know what? You gave this money from the university to this Confederate group. We actually are going to withhold our money. They withheld their money because it was going to develop a grant that would help with campus-wide uh, reckoning with truth-telling and confronting the university's entanglements with slavery. 
But that seems to be counter to what the university was doing with its money in the first place. And then just uh, recently, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights actually is working with the students to sue Chapel Hill around the secrecy that they used to even allocate the money in the first place. So in the last board meeting, the board didn't even show up in person. The only person that was present was the head of the board. The rest of the board called in so that they wouldn't have to deal with any of the protesters. And here's the thing. If you stand behind your decision, then you should be ready to deal with people when they challenge you on that decision in public. If you are so confident that this decision is right. It also is one of those interesting things about the difference between what people say are their values and then the way that those values show up in actions. So the UNC leaders had said all this stuff about this is what they believe and they value. And then when people weren't looking, they gave the Confederate group money. And you know what the university has continued to say is that the money came with stipulations. So Uh, They actually didn't outright give the money to the Confederate group. They gave the group access to the money. And before the money can be released, then a trustee from UNC has to allow them to use it in a certain way. And they have been saying that, you know what, this isn't as bad as it seems, that the consent letter that we gave to them actually puts these restrictions so it won't be used to fund anything that is racist or problematic. And as you know, that is just bureaucratic speak uh, to provide cover for other people's actions. So we all stand with the UNC protesters. This is unacceptable and it's an awful precedent. And if the chancellor won't overturn the decision, uh, he is not fit to lead. Don't go anywhere. More Potsy the People is coming. Potsy the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stresses happening, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay. Leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Silence is golden, especially when it comes to brakes. That's why Napa Silent Guard are built to be one of the smoothest and most quiet brakes on the market. Made with fiber-reinforced shims that eliminate noise for the life of the pad, rubber-coated hardware for a better fit, and quality design that meets and exceeds OE performance. Silent Guard brakes deliver the stopping power drivers demand. Available now at Napa locations nationwide. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. So my news is about Kentucky, where as of last week, Kentucky had the highest rate of disenfranchisement of black voters of any state. 
26% of the black population of Kentucky was disenfranchised, permanently barred from voting because of the state's felony disenfranchisement law. That's 10% overall for the population and 26% for the black population. That has now changed as of this week because the state's new governor, who just got elected by a margin of only about 5,000 votes, Andy Bashar, a Democrat, signed an executive order that restores voting rights to approximately 140 thousand people in the state who have completed their sentence for what they're calling nonviolent felonies. Now, again, there's some confusion around uh, how they're classifying particular crimes and who's eligible, who's not eligible. But ultimately, this is about 140,000 people, almost half of the total population that's disenfranchised in the state that's now having their voting rights automatically restored via executive order. And this is really, really big because Kentucky had, up to this point, the highest rate of disenfranchisement for Black voters. Um, it was also one of only a, a couple states that were left that permanently disenfranchised people uh, for life for a felony. The other state is Iowa that continues to do that. But this is great news. Uh, it's progress, although obviously there's still room to go much further in terms of restoring voting rights to the remaining population that has a felony conviction, people with felony for quote-unquote violent offenses. But this is still good news, and I'm hopeful that more states will pick this up, particularly Iowa, which is the first state to hold an election. It's important to note that a lot of people are disenfranchised in that primary election. But yeah, so that's what happened this week. So Sam, you know, this always reminds me of how fragile people's rights are. And, and the idea that the governor even has the power to do it is so interesting that like, law doesn't need to pass. Like, you don't have to lobby all these people. It's like the thought around the country that a single person has the power to re-enfranchise people is so fascinating to me. And you did talk about some people are carved out of this executive order. So there are a host of crimes like treason, bribery in an election, rape, sexual abuse, and homicide, which are excluded from the order. And as of this executive order, I was the only state now with a lifetime ban on voting for anyone who is convicted of a felony. Earlier, we talked about what felony theft is. And when most people think about a felony, they think about mass murder, rape. But you think about theft over $1,000, theft over $500, theft over $300, depending on the state you're in, is a felony. And people often don't think about that. That like, you could have stolen a bike at 18 in Florida, and under the old law, you would have been uh, permanently banned from voting. In Florida today, when you become a felon, you permanently lose the right to ever run for public office. That didn't change with the last law. So... I'm always interested in the way that we talk about these things. The other thing, and I don't know if you all saw this that came out about Georgia, is that they were able to quantify now the impact of those closed polling locations. And the data now shows that it depressed the vote in a substantive way, that if those locations had been open, the number of votes would have far exceeded the number of votes that Stacey Abrams would have needed. And that data just came out. So we know that part of the way the Republicans have tried to win and have been successful at it is to actually engage in deep, deep voter suppression. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution mapped Georgia's 7 million registered voters and compared how the distance to their local precincts increased or decreased from 2012 to 2018. And during that time, election officials shut down 8% of Georgia's polling places and relocated 40% of the state's precincts. They were playing the long game. And what AJC found is that the closures and longer distances prevented an estimated 54,000 to 85,000 people from casting their votes. And that Black voters are 20% more likely to miss the election because of longer distances. So this matters because you think about the small margin with which Stacey Abrams lost. She lost by about 54,000 votes. And if there had been higher turnout, if there had been more polling places open in communities that would have historically supported a candidate like her, she would have won. So for my news this week, I want to talk about a piece in The Intercept uh, this past week that was examining the fight against the death penalty nationwide. Now, we've talked about the death penalty on numerous occasions before on the podcast, but The Intercept created this really interesting new data set that gives us insight into how profoundly flawed the death penalty is to an even greater extent than we knew before. So The Intercept has been compiling this data set of individuals sentenced to death dating back to 1976, which is when the U.S. Supreme Court ushered in what is commonly known as our modern death penalty era. Just four years earlier in Furman v. Georgia, the Supreme Court had ruled that capital punishment was 
unconstitutional as applied throughout the United States, describing it as both arbitrary and capricious. Justice Potter Stewart famously wrote that, quote, these death sentences are cruel and unusual in the same way that being struck by lightning is cruel and unusual. So as states rewrote their death penalty statutes to comply with Furman, some, including Wyoming, which is a a particular focus of attention in this article and which passed a new law in 1973, sought to make death sentences mandatory for only certain crimes as one way to impose uniformity. Others designed bifurcated trials in which mitigating factors would be weighed against aggravating factors to decide whether or not a defendant should be killed. So in 1976, the Supreme Court upheld the latter sentencing scheme in the landmark decision Greg v. Georgia, and executions resumed the next year. So the report done by The Intercept more starkly exposed one other familiar aspect of the death penalty's failure, which is a huge number of death sentences that will never actually lead to an execution. The single largest group of people in the data set is no longer on death row at all. More than 2,000 people, according to The Intercept, have been resentenced who were on death row, and hundreds have been released. Hundreds more have died awaiting execution, and dozens have killed themselves. The data set suggests that 7,300 individuals sentenced in 29 state and federal systems. Of those, 1,448 were executed and 2,752 remained on death row. And it contained also startling numbers when it came to race. The country's leading death penalty states, racial disparities appear to be getting larger rather than declining. Uh, The Intercept was particularly struck by a place like Colorado where, and this is wild, where not only are all of the people on death row black, but they all went to the same high school. So there are profound racial and geographic implications there. The data also more starkly exposes the fact that, again, I emphasize more than 2,000 people have been resentenced and hundreds of people who have been released. And this is important because hundreds of people who were sentenced to death were subsequently released and exonerated because somebody or someone intervened in their case and they were able to find them innocent after they had already been put on death row. And this just reemphasizes something that we've said before. One in 25 people on death row are actually innocent. And there is no other facet of our lives in which we would accept a 4% failure rate that resulted in somebody's death. We would never fly planes if 4% of them crashed. We would never eat at restaurants if 4% of the food could give you salmonella. We would never drive cars if there was a 4% chance that it would explode when you got into it. So the idea that we have a 4% chance of people on death row being found innocent and continue to engage in this practice in the first place is absurd, right? It's absurd morally, it's absurd economically, and it's absurd in every sort of imaginable way that I can conceive of. So I'm grateful for The Intercept for creating this data set and giving us more insight into how horrific the death penalty is, and it is long past time for the death penalty to be abolished. You know, I think um, what you just pointed out about the absurdity of it on so many different levels is really the point here, right? And I think it's interesting to remember that, especially when you look at what has happened in Wyoming around this, it was really a bipartisan effort. And I know that, especially given what we are dealing with in the federal government right now, bipartisan efforts to do anything worthwhile feel like a very foreign concept, something that happened long ago and may not ever return. But the idea that in a state like Wyoming, the ending of the death penalty and the effort to do so might be, in fact, a bipartisan effort is something that reminds us of the fact that interest convergence is real. And that when you've got conservatives who are out there saying, look, this doesn't make any fiscal sense. And when you've got conservatives and liberals saying, hey, this also doesn't make any moral sense, you can actually come to a real conclusion on this and find the kind of common ground that a lot of people like to talk about in a hokey way, but in this way could actually make a real difference in people's lives. Also, to your point, Clint, I think that it's critically important that we point out the racist underpinnings of the death penalty, that it is absolutely morally egregious. And on top of that, it is often wielded in highly racist ways, the largest mass execution in this country's history was the execution of dozens of indigenous people during the U.S.-Dakota War in 1862. And even as we have moved into the more modern era of the death penalty, as you've already stated, it is black folks, indigenous folks, brown folks that are suffering the most. But um, I think that this kind of coalition is really powerful. And it is a reminder of what we can do with folks who are our own neighbors right in the very places that we live where we can make a difference. 
So one of the other aspects of the death penalty in the United States that's interesting is how it's increasingly becoming a regional phenomenon. So when you look at who's actually being executed in the United States, for example, since 2017, all of the executions are happening either in the Midwest or in the South. And there are just a small number of states that are responsible for the vast majority of executions. So since 2017, according to uh, deathpenaltyinfo.org, uh, there were 70 executions in the United States during that time period, of which 80% of those executions were in Texas, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, and Tennessee. So in terms of a strategy to end the death penalty in the United States, while pushing for that to happen federally, a state-by-state -state strategy that focuses on the states that are executing the largest numbers of people would have the biggest impact on this issue. Um, so I think it's great that in the West, particularly, we're seeing some progress. In California, we saw how the governor essentially uh, shut down the prospect of executing people, although they had already sort of temporarily stalled that. But again, most of this is happening in the South and in the Midwest. And so until states like Texas or Florida or Alabama or Georgia or Tennessee or even Ohio and Missouri start taking action on this issue, we're still going to see these same levels of uh, executions happening. So again, that, that might be an opportunity for a ballot initiative. Um, it might be an opportunity for flipping these state legislatures and, and governorships, but that has to be a part of the strategy to end the death penalty in the country. I feel like every time we talk about things, I learn something new. I also didn't realize how stark the disparity was. I didn't know that every single person on the federal death row from Virginia and all from the Eastern District of Missouri are people of color. And people of color have received 75% of federal death sentences imposed in Texas in the modern era. I didn't know that those who were sentenced federally have only a single chance in post-conviction to seek redress and then have no automatic right to appeal, which is different than people who are sentenced to death in states. I also didn't know that the Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, which includes Texas, which is important because it's the state with the most federal death sentences, has never granted a federal death row prisoner permission to appeal based on a post-conviction issue. And I also didn't know that the Supreme Court has granted review in only one federal death penalty case in the modern era, and that was two decades ago. So you look at it, and it's like, you know, one of the challenges with the way I think Hollywood has told stories about death row is that we always see this lawyer come in, and they, like, see this injustice, and they, like, fight, and they get the person off. And I think that a lot of people who aren't close to the issue, they're like, that's what happens. That is, like, when something goes wrong, we get this lawyer comes in, and we just get the person off death row, and here's the hero. And the reality is, is that the majority of people have no hero coming in to help them. The system is not on their side. The structure is screwed. And we should stop telling stories about one hero that helps one person that completely blinds people to the way the system is bearing down on people's lives. It's not a success that we had a hero come in and help one person. It is a temporary win in the moment. A success would be changing the system in a way that allows for people not to get caught up in it in the first place. I'm next. I'm the news. So my news is interesting. So you know that as a part of the health care bill that passed under Trump, that the individual mandate did get taken away. So there's not the individual mandate at the federal level anymore. But it's actually going to a lot of states. So California is going to have an individual mandate starting January 1st, 2020 for health insurance. D.C.'s individual mandate started at the beginning of 2019. And there had been a lot of talk that the individual mandate was bad, that it wasn't something that was productive, that people didn't like it. And inadvertently, there's a study that shows that the individual mandate saved people's lives. So three years ago, about 4 million people received a letter from the IRS. And inside the letter says that they paid a fine for not carrying health insurance. And the letter told them that one way to avoid the fine is to enroll in coverage. Some researchers, a partner with the IRS to look at a result of what happened to people who got those letters. And what they find is that for the people that got insurance, it reduced premature deaths by an amount that exceeded anybody's expectations. So Americans between 45 and 64 benefited the most. For every 1,648 people who received a letter, one fewer death occurred than among those who hadn't received a letter. And the researchers estimated that the letters themselves might have saved about 700 lives. 
it was what we now understand is an experiment was not necessarily intentional. They didn't send the letters out to be able to track the results, but the results do now provide vindication for the individual mandate that was a part of Obamacare until December 2017 when Congress did away with it uh, so that there's no more fine for people who don't carry health insurance. And this to me is interesting because we're in a moment where the uninsured rate for Americans is rising for the first time in a decade and states are tightening eligibility rules for Medicaid and the Trump administration is being the Trump administration. But it too was a reminder to me about the power of the simple things that sometimes people literally just need like a notice. Sometimes people need a ping or a ding to say, go do this. And then people will do it. I'll never forget running health insurance for the school system in Baltimore. And men were the worst. Like men never, we had great benefits and men wouldn't go to the doctors until a limb was falling off. And it was like a continual like, hey, just so you know, you have health insurance. Hey, you can go to urgent care. Hey, like reminding people that they had access to these things because I feel like when I was growing up, I think when all of us probably, I'd be interested to hear, uh, we only went to the hospital when it was like death was likely imminent. It was like blood that my great-grandmother couldn't stop or like a fever that just wouldn't break. We never went to the hospital. It was always sweat it out, drink some ginger ale. We live in a different time where like you should be able to go to urgent care and just like do that $10 copay and get seen. So I wanted to bring this here. I'm always interested in the studies that go unseen. This was really powerful reading. It was interesting to listen to the researchers who were a bit torn, right? Because they recognized that the intention was for the letter to go to everyone. But now suddenly there were two different groups that presented a research opportunity. And this is critically important research. I'm thinking actually a lot about the continued presidential conversation And for all of the complaints and frustrations that I have with candidates who have been getting in late in the game, I actually am very interested to hear what Governor Deval Patrick has to say about healthcare moving forward. Obviously, there's a lot of conversation about Medicare for all, and then there are some candidates who say Medicare for all who wants it. But it is fascinating to me that under the Patrick administration in Massachusetts, about 98% of folks that live in that state became insured. Uh, And I I think that the complications and the nuances and the details of how to actually get people insured are things that are lost on a lot of us as everyday citizens. And I'm really interested to see what he can contribute to this conversation as being someone who's created practically virtual universal health care in his state. Obviously, it's not a perfect system, but I am interested to see how this conversation continues. Because like we said at the very beginning, we started off this decade with a massive win with the passing of Obama care and we are ending this decade trying to ward off the attacks against it um, and trying to get to a place that Obamacare was supposed to be a bridge to. Obamacare was never supposed to be the end. Obamacare was always supposed to be a bridge toward some way to get everybody the insurance that they need. I did a podcast the other day about mental health and I've been open about my own struggles with depression and anxiety. But part of what has been critical to my ability to heal and to continue to heal has been not only access to insurance, but access to really good insurance. I've never had a therapy copay over $20. DeRay, to your question, I grew up in a household where if something was really wrong, yeah, we went to the hospital because the copay was $10 or $20. We could afford it even when the ambulance bill would come, which is wild that we live in a country that will do that. Um, we could pay the 100 or $150 ambulance bill. And so I grew up in a space where we really did have strong access to healthcare resources and therefore understand the value of what they are and the fact that everyone should have access to them. So I'm interested to see how studies like these and others continue to push forward this conversation in 2020 around how we're actually going to secure that for all Americans. That's the news. And now my conversation with Mondeo Jones. He is running to represent New York's 17th district in the United States Congress. He would be the first black openly gay congressman ever. Let's hear what he has to say. Mondaire, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So you are running to be a congressman. I am. I'm running for the Democratic nomination in New York's 17th Congressional District. Congress is 535 people, right? Yes. And not much seems to be moving in Congress these days, partly, if not solely, because of this uh, president. Why would anybody want to be a member of Congress? Like, what do you... I'm just interested in like what you hope to get out of this in the event that you win. Yeah, you know, it's not what I hope to get out of it, it's what I hope to give. And for so many people in my district, which is 
uh, all of Rockland County, where I was born and raised, and parts of central and northern Westchester County, that is the kind of leadership that people deserve. Uh, For me, policy is personal. I was raised by a single mom who, like so many women all throughout my district and all throughout this country, worked multiple jobs just to be able to provide for our family, even as we relied on Section 8 housing and food stamps. So that economic insecurity that not enough people who are in Congress know what it's like to feel uh, is something with which I'm really familiar. And I think we need more people like me in office fighting tooth and nail and not compromising in the way that, frankly, so many Democrats are doing right now who are in Congress. There are a lot of people, though, who would say that you can take all those experiences you've had and you could do a host of things with them. You could continue law. You could be an advocate. You could work in the nonprofit space, really pushing legislators to do incredible things. As one of 535, like, what's the what there? Yeah. You know, I thought about those things. And in fact, I've been doing some of those things. I've been practicing as an attorney on behalf of people in my district, in the courtrooms, fighting for justice and for and for taxpayers, in many instances for people who had things taken from them that should not have been taken from them. I've investigated claims of employment discrimination, uh, and I've helped people who were defrauded during the financial crisis on a pro bono basis uh, get back some of that money. But one thing I keep seeing is that the federal government can be doing a lot of this stuff on a much larger scale. Whether that is changing the law to make sure that people like myself and like you are treated equally under the law or fighting to make sure that the 30 million plus people who don't even have health insurance in this country, which is wild to me in a nation as wealthy as the United States of America, actually can get covered. And those are things that you can't really do unless you're in the federal government fighting to get things done. Now, what did you do before this run? What was your life before you sold it all over to being a candidate, which is an all-consuming experience? Yeah, not not too much of a social life these days. Um, Maybe sometimes I can sit at home and like watch Netflix or uh, catch up on some shows, but this is this is an all-consuming thing. So after graduating Stanford University, where I got really involved in progressive causes like uh, faculty and graduate student diversity, uh, policing reform (laughs) in my senior year. The Palo Alto police chief made some statements that embraced racial profiling. And so I organized my fellow students and I work with people in the Palo Alto community to apply pressure. And she ultimately resigned and we got some really significant policing reforms in the Palo Alto Police Department. Then I went to the Obama administration. And what's funny is that I was at the Department of Justice as a non-lawyer, like some kid who just graduated college, 22 years old. Um, These were the early years of the Obama administration. And I was vetting candidates for federal judgeships (laughs) which is something that appears not to be happening right now because you got nominees who won't even say they agree with Brown v. Board. I mean, that's how how racist so many of the people in this administration and the people who they nominate for things have become. And then also I was working on criminal justice reform. I was writing, I was co-authoring a report for Attorney General Holder on how to reduce recidivism for people who are leaving the federal prison system. And then I went to Harvard Law School where I provided pro bono legal defense to indigent defendants, folks who can't afford to hire representation in the form of a lawyer, uh, where I saw what I already knew and what you already know from your own experiences, which is that people who look like us are over-arrested, over-prosecuted, and over-sentenced, not to mention over-policed. And then I went, I worked at a firm, I had $120,000 in law school debt. (laughs) So I went to work at a firm and, and tried to pay off as much of that as possible Uh, and clerked for a judge before saying, you know what, I want to do this public service thing full time. I want to be like so many of my friends who are really loving the life that they're living and like you, (laughs) because at that point I had seen you on TV. So I went and I worked uh, for Westchester County uh, as a legal advisor to some elected officials and also as a litigator. And one of the things I'm really proud of doing is having begun the process of overhauling our human rights law in Westchester County, which is really outdated, before saying, you know what, I'm really pissed at what's going on in this country. And I don't think Democrats are fighting hard enough, uh, despite having a majority in the House of Representatives. So I announced my campaign even before my member of Congress had said she's not going to seek reelection next year. And people thought that was crazy at the time. They were like, why are you wasting your time? There's no way you're going to win this. But a few months ago, my member of Congress said she's not going to be seeking reelection. And so uh, now the race is getting crowded. Did you like law school? I did not enjoy law school. I love the people. But for me... Law school is a place, at least where I went to law school and where many of my friends who went to other schools went to law school, 
uh, is a place where people don't really have an understanding of what it's like to be an everyday person in this country. And the law reflects that. Uh, there, there are so many arbitrary things about the law that we buy into and that we don't question. And that doesn't reflect the way people have lived experiences, especially people of color and poor people and women and members of the LGBTQ community, of which I'm a part. I asked because I've never met anybody who loved law school. So I was like, <laughs> maybe you liked it. That's interesting, though, this idea that the experience doesn't mimic or match sort of the overall experience, but that the law doesn't either is interesting. Yeah. I, one, so one thing that comes to mind is when you're stopped by a police officer and the police officer asks if he can search your person, you can say no to that. Very few people know that. You know, they think that they'll be arrested if they decline that. And they certainly don't know that you have the right to say no and continue to walk down that street or wherever you may find yourself. But the law says, the law pretends as though people are able to discern for themselves whether they have the power to stand up to a police officer in that instance. And that's just not true. I mean, when a police officer stops you on the street and asks you a question, he has the entire power of the government, whether that be the state or the federal government, to bear. And so the average person is going to be so intimidated that they're not going to know that they even have a right not to do that. And we need to account for that in the law. So one of the things I saw in your campaign literature is that you would be the first openly black gay member of Congress. I'd be the first openly gay black member of Congress in United States history, which is— I was mumbling the M because I was like, man, but it's not. Nah, it's, it's, it's member. I mean, when Barbara Jordan died, her obituary said that she had lived with a woman for 20 years, but she was never able to live openly, and nor has any other black person— who has served or is serving in Congress. Now, why does that matter? Because there are a host of people who sort of think identity politics is a distraction or is like a marketing ploy. There's a whole lot of noise about identity politics. What do you think your identity brings to this race that matters? When I was growing up in the village of Spring Valley, New York, poor, black, and gay, it would have made my life so much easier to be able to look to an openly gay black member of Congress or some other person in elected office who was respectable and who I could look up to because that would have been direct evidence for me that things really do get better. And I didn't have that. I mean, it's gotten better. Like the things that, that aided my coming out process is, you might laugh at this, but it was like Noah's Ark, which was a TV show where like you, you see these black men who are gay and loving relationships, which I had never seen before or even imagined. Uh, and then also it was Frank Ocean coming out uh, in that heartfelt letter in, I think, 2012, uh, in which he acknowledged that some of the songs on Channel Orange were addressed to another man. So while I'm not running to be the first openly gay black member of Congress, I am definitely acutely aware of the fact that I'm already making a difference in the lives of young people who are paying attention to this campaign and older people. Like, folks, you might not even imagine who are older than I am saying, you know what, I'm really proud of you. Uh, you're, you're giving our community great confidence to be our authentic selves. And that representation cannot be underestimated. So the folks who, who describe that as identity politics, when it's convenient for them, to hell with those people. Because I know what it means to benefit from the kind of representation that I would now provide for people all throughout this country. And I'm hearing it in my personal interactions with people every day. How's it been on the campaign trail? And I ask you, because I'll never forget, I remember coming out in the protest. I was out in the world already in my life, but I remember making the choice to tell a reporter that I was gay, and he thought this is a big story. That was definitely when we didn't realize it. You know, everybody around the country had watched the protest, and that was a, people were very homophobic that day, which I'll never forget. And then I remember running for mayor in... I'll never forget meeting a voter once who was like, I really liked you until I saw, I dressed up as like the black swan one Halloween. It was like a random, I was a very good black swan, but it was like on Instagram. And he was like, until I saw that photo of you as a black swan. And it was like, it was all homophobia, right? But I didn't want people to think that the only way to be visible in social justice was to pretend to be straight or to be straight, right? So like I had all these followers way before anybody knew that I was gay. And then uh, it is a small piece and a much bigger story that came out that day. But I asked because I'd be interested to know, what has that been like on the trail? Yeah, it's, I, I, I joke, but, but not really with my friends, that I have never been more openly gay than before yeah, a few months ago when this campaign started getting national attention. 
it has been overwhelmingly positive, but you know, you definitely encounter homophobia, whether that's on social media or in a case that I will never forget, even after I get elected to Congress. And that is that the day after my member of Congress said that she wasn't going to seek reelection, my communications team in particular thought that it would be helpful to get a whole bunch of endorsements lined up and announced that same day to show that we had momentum. And one of the folks who I called has been someone who I've known since I was in high school. In fact, his fraternity gave me a scholarship when I was a senior in high school. And he told me that I had his his support. I could list him. He's an elected official in my district who has a, a relatively prominent position. And then my team called him to get a quote for the media. And he said, I know I promised him my endorsement, but have Mondaire give me a call back. So I do that. I call him and he says, well, I didn't know that you were running as an openly gay candidate. I'm really disappointed that you decided to put that information out there. And I said, sir, I'm disappointed in you. And that is just, I think, emblematic of the work that we still need to do, the fact that a Democratic politician in elected office, who some people respect at least, would engage in that kind of thinking and feel justified enough to even feel comfortable uttering those words. That shows that we really need to do a lot, I think, even as a party uh, and as a society, right? Because Lord knows the Republican Party is has a, has a lot of homophobia in it, but it's not confined to the Republican Party. I'd love to know, how long have you been on the campaign trail? How long has it been since you declared? Monday, July 8th was when I announced my candidacy. Feels like a lifetime, I'm sure. One of the things that that was so real to me being a candidate for the first time is that you learn a lot about yourself in the process. You're doing like more, asking for more favors than you've literally asked for your entire life. It's just, it's a whole lot of everything, you know? And I'd love to know, like, what have you learned about yourself so far in the process? Wow, that's a great question. You know, I am a very patient person, more patient than I used to be in terms of the things that I will now allow people to (laughs) say to me, knowing that a lot of it comes from a good place. You know, my campaign manager jokes that, like, politics is the only field where everyone thinks that, like, their opinion matters and they would chime in and give you feedback and advice on how you ought to be running your campaign. Another thing that I've learned about myself is that I'm even braver than I thought I was. Before, articles, entire like feature-length profiles of me being gay uh, were published, I was still really nervous about that, despite the fact that I came out so many years ago to my family and to my friends and to people at work. But this whole process is has been nervous coming how? out all over again. Nervous in the sense that, you know, I grew up in a black church. And I'm very much a part of that community. And I may not go to church as frequently as I used to go when I was growing up, but that is still a world where being gay is still taboo. And it has never been a conversation that I've had with my church community. And so for people to learn on television and online and in printed media is still something that made me a little nervous. But I've been really happy to see that the support is still there. Sometimes I question how national conversations actually make it into living rooms, you know? What are people talking about? Healthcare? Are they talking about uh, crime? Are they talking about immigration? People are talking about immigration. They are talking about the student debt crisis. And Okay, New York 17. Yeah. I'm, now, a lot of times I'm the one to bring it up. <laughs> but because I'm part of this generation where, you know, thousands of people in my district are still living at home with their parents because they can't afford to be on their own paying rent. Or buying a home. By the way, this our generation, you know this. We were sold this bill of goods that if we just went to college like our parents, if our parents were fortunate enough to have gone to college and to have graduated, which my parents were not, uh, that, that things would just work out for us. But we know that that's not true. And if you are going to be able to live in Westchester and in Rockland County, where I'm from, and in so many other communities, and to be able to be out on your own, like starting a family, you need someone to correct in this economy for the fact that people are saddled with crippling debt. And that for me means free public tuition so that people don't have to make a choice between going into crippling debt to get something that I think is a public good at this point, college education is. It's nearly as essential as a K-12 through education for so many people, not everybody, but for so many people. And then also making sure that we forgive the student debt that's keeping people still living at home with their parents in this country. Healthcare? Medicare for all comes up a lot. You know, I frequently get asked, you know, are, are you supportive of, of Medicare for all? And the answer is yes. What is Medicare for all for people? Depends on who you ask. But for me, it is making sure that everyone, literally everyone 
in this country is covered by health insurance or has access to health care, meaning is guaranteed health care. So that's if you get fired or you want to quit your job to do a startup, then you don't have to worry about losing your insurance and as a result, losing health care because the public option does not solve for that situation. You know, my grandmother worked well past the age of retirement just to pay for the high cost of prescription drugs and medical procedures. That's not covered under Medicare as we currently know it. And when I quit my job this summer, I lost my health insurance. So I know firsthand what it's like to be in a system where even a public option wouldn't solve for that. It's going to take guaranteeing health care, which is a fundamental human right for everybody in this country, and that is Medicare for all, where you don't have to pay deductibles, don't have to pay premiums, don't have to pay copays, and where things are going to be covered that weren't covered before, like long-term care for the elderly in particular, hearing aids and vision and dental, and also capping the price of prescription drugs. What can people do? I'm not taking corporate PAC money. And so for me, fundraising is even more important than it would be for other candidates. I also don't come from wealth, and I don't come from a political family. There's also a billionaire in the race who is going to be able to self-fund, and so there's a lot of competition. So what people can do to help is to go to mondareforcongress.com, M-O-N-D-A-I-R-E for congress.com. Or you can write a check made out to Mondare for Congress and mail it to P.O. Box 933, Nyack, New York, 10960. Shout out to Nyack. Big Nyack in the house. Shout out to Nyack. I live in Nyack. Well, thank you for coming today on Pod to the People. We consider you a friend of the pod. Boom. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod to the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Ashley's Memorial Day mattress sale is going on now. Save big on select adjustable mattress sets up to $1,200 on Beautyrest Black, up to $800 on Purple, and up to $500 on Tempur-Pedic. Plus, get 72-month special financing with select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Visit your local Ashley store or ashley.com for better sleep and savings. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details. Your home is your place of peace. It's clean. It's welcoming. (sighs) And it's definitely not crawling with invading insects if you use Ortho Home Defense Max. Use it indoors on non-porous surfaces to treat and prevent cockroaches, spiders, and ants for up to 12 months. So your home can stay your place of peace, your work-from-home office, and your family's headquarters. Kill bugs inside, keep bugs outside, and love your home. Visit ortho.com for more.